I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. So we've been publishing the solar risk assessment for the last five years, to your point. It's almost more important for the next five years because we're going to have a lot of new people who are looking for resources, looking for best practices. So I guess my call for other peers in the industry is like, all ships rise. We know people are going to come in and take advantage of the transfer. So how can we collectively help educate the market? According to the International Energy Agency, the world is expected to build more renewable projects in the next five years as we have in the past 20. But this rapid and massive growth in the renewable energy space has proven increasingly challenging for insurers of these assets, who are struggling to deal with mounting losses from natural disasters, which themselves are often driven by climate change, as well as growing demand for new products that insure against other emerging risks, such as production and revenue variability. So in this episode, I sit down with Jason Kaminsky, CEO and co-founder of KWH Analytics, perhaps the leader in delivering data-enabled climate insurance for zero-carbon assets. In the discussion, Jason and I get into the weeds on the recent evolution of the climate insurance industry, KWH's fifth annual solar risk assessment, as well as data-enabled solutions to address the most pressing risks facing the U.S. solar industry today. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you, Chad. I'm glad to be here. Well, first, I'd like to start with a question that I like to ask all of our guests, and that is, how did you find your way into the climate space? Were there any specific formative experiences that compelled you to devote your professional career to protecting our planet for future generations? You know, I guess it starts back in undergrad when I studied, turns out I studied a climate change degree before climate change degrees existed. So I was at UCLA. It was called atmospheric sciences at the time, although now I think they call it climate change. And it was basically like, I like science and I hated biology. And it was one of the few degrees you could get with, without having to take biology. Um, so I did that and I did math. And it was sort of my formal training in this space. Like, I don't know. It just seems like such an important, uh, that I was like, how can I apply my career? And I was in undergrad. I didn't know a lick about what I was going to do. And I was like, policy sound feels way too long and attractable and not my personality. Being in a lab doesn't really suit my personality. And I sort of stumbled upon an article about MBA programs that have sustainability themes. And I, I mean, I had exposure to business, but I was in college, so not a ton. I am going to business school. And there I was like, okay, great. Now I have business, but it's a big funnel. How do I best apply that within the space that I want? So I did my MBA. I did a, a master's in energy systems, as it turns out. But energy sort of within all of that, I spent a year looking at corporate social responsibility and carbon credits and all this stuff. This is 15 years ago. And energy just felt like it touched on a lot of topics that were important to me. I mean, obviously, environmental theme being an important one, economics, like the military industrial complex, like getting us up oil. It just hit a lot of themes and felt like such an obvious place to have a big leverage point. So I wouldn't say there was a single formative moment. I mean, it always just felt like sort of an, an obvious thing that people needed to work in. And I guess I was privileged to have the opportunity to say, I don't need to be a lawyer and I don't need to be a doctor. And like, I could sort of be a little bit more creative in my career, which is definitely a privilege that I acknowledge. And through a set of, I guess, self-exploration sort of landed in business as the way to apply that. And then within that, the energy space. And that was probably 20 years ago at this point. And I've been working in the solar industry ever since. 
Now let's turn to the company you co-founded and run, KWH Analytics, which is a leader in climate insurance, specifically deliver data-enabled insurance for zero-carbon assets. And you've been there nearly a decade after you spent some time at Wells Fargo in environmental finance. So talk us through why you co-founded the company and how your business model has evolved over the last decade. That's right. So I was at, uh, actually before that, I was at a solar developer, so I had a business school, and then I ended up at Wells Fargo doing tax equity. Little did I know how esoteric tax equity is within the project finance space, but it is. I learned a lot. And yeah, now about 10 years ago, left to co-found KWH. And really, the thesis at the time was, as an industry, we're lacking data to make data-driven decisions. Sort of a high-level concept. What does that mean as a company? We didn't really know at the time. But we set about building tools and software to essentially help financial investors help manage their investments. So if you're a tax equity investor, you get paid back based off the revenue that the project sells. That's the whole concept of project finance is you're lending to an asset. So there's a whole bunch of monitoring asset management requirements. And it turns out once you're passing 100 assets or a couple hundred assets, it gets really hard to do in Excel. And so we built tools essentially for banks, built risk management tools on top of that, launched reports like our solar risk assessment, and probably 2015 era, we got an award with the, from the Department of Energy to apply our data, so about 30% of operating data in the US, into modeling about long data production risk. And that project sort of transformed itself into the first product that brought us into insurance, which is called the solar revenue put. At a very high level, what we're doing is we're taking production volatility we're offloading it into the insurance markets and helping our clients, which are the asset owners, get preferred financial treatment from their banks as a result of that. We're kind of Project Finance 101 is identify and structure risk at the entity that holds the best. And we believe our model has the best view of long-dated production risk in the market. So we're using that to underwrite this risk. And then a couple of years ago, we actually got pulled into the property insurance market. So this is still renewables, still predominantly solar storage, a little bit of wind, predominantly non-residential. So rooftops, ground mount, but now for physical damage. So our production products are all about the things that can go wrong that aren't the catastrophes. <laughs> um, and this is more now what can really, really go wrong uh, within the business. And things like fire, flood, hail is a big topic. Those are now the, the business that we're in the market of insuring. And our business model is that we represent carriers. We underwrite risk on behalf of carriers. We sell insurance products through brokers. But one of the top pain points, the reason I got the call was they said, hey, look, insurance, frankly, at a bank, had never really been on the radar screen. Like in my four years at Wells Fargo, I maybe cumulatively spent an hour thinking about insurance. It was like, we had language in the docs, people never negotiated it, it was fine. And the call I got was like, hey, this has come from something we don't think about to a top three credit issue. Like it's a major pain point with us and our clients because the insurance isn't available in the way that we need in order to finance this asset. Now let's get into how the insurance industry, especially as it relates to solar and other renewables, has evolved. You have a good blog post where you talk about a change that happened around 2019. Before that, and part of the reason you probably never thought about insurance before then, is because it was really easy to procure for the most part. 
I actually worked for Terraform Power for a few years. And for whatever reason, I was actually in charge of procuring property and casualty insurance for a year or two for Terraform. And that's how I got to know Sarah Kane, who I know you're connected with as well. But, but talk us through how property casualty insurance and the renewables industry has evolved over the last few years, which led to your company's entry into the space. I'll take a note out of Sarah's book. Sarah likes to say that in renewables, we have a correcting market within a hardening market. So let me explain what both of those means. Let me start with hardening market. Renewable energy insurance sits within the broader property insurance market. So the same carriers, the same reinsurance carriers that are providing insurance to renewable energy, do it for commercial buildings, do it for autos, do it for homes in many instances. It's all sort of big pools of capital that aggregate up risk. And within that market, there have been significant losses that have seemed to get worse every year as the quote unquote billion dollar natural disasters happen every year. And that insurance just got more expensive. So, you know, carriers are pulling out of California because of wildfire risk, like Florida is an awful market because of hurricane risk. So that's sort of the, the hardening market. Hardening market just means rates are going up. Then we have the correcting market. So this is the 2019 example. So Midway, the maybe the most famous asset and the little part of the market that I'm in, was a asset in Texas that had a big hailstorm hit it and caught a bunch of carriers by surprise because carriers had never heard of micro cracks, hadn't really experienced a lot of hail losses. And like, frankly, sort of makes sense if you look at the charts of how Texas has grown relative to the rest of the country. Texas has sort of come out of nowhere to become the number one market in the U.S. as far as installed capacity. And like, oh, by the way, there's a ton of hail in Texas that we never see out here in California where I live. So you are building assets in more hazardous regions. At the same time, our industry is like super good at squeezing every penny out of <laughs> out of what you're building. So you have thinner glass, you just have more vulnerable equipment and like those worlds collide and you have a lot of losses. So the reason that this was becoming an issue for the banks and actually now an issue for the clients is like a fewfold. One is rates are going up. So it's becoming a much more material expense. And second is carriers that have limited capacity to deploy in any asset class around the world. Just like why load up on a bunch of Texas hail risk if there's other ways you can get a rate that's less concentrated. So you sort of have a confluence of factors that are all leading to this. It's global. I mean, insurance in many ways is like global pools of structured finance capital. They're all just spreading risk around. But it's great you brought up Sarah because she's, she's always like, make sure you attribute that to me, the correcting market in the hard market, which I will. So thank you, Sarah. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. And you now have over a decade of data on the operational performance of solar assets. So how do you leverage that to better, I guess, model the risks that insurers are taking with regard to these solar projects? One of the challenges we face as an industry, if you're generally speaking, modeling an asset, you're looking at what's the risk of an event happening and then how does that affect your asset? And a lot of the data we have now is about how does it affect the asset? So physical loss data that we put through the models. And what you want to know is ultimately what are those factors that affect the asset? So one of my big themes, and I do post on social media a lot, I've sort of gotten big into LinkedIn, is about resilience, is how do we build more resilient assets in the ground? Because there are decisions you can make as someone building and operating assets that really affect the risk. And I'd say most carriers 
or maybe even one step naive on that. Like if they're modeling it, the knowledge of what kind of equipment is better, what kind of operating decisions are better, doesn't always go into their rating models and their pricing models. And like some of these underwriters like sit in London, they've never been to a US solar project. You know, the way that this risk gets transferred is opaque to most end users, myself included, before I have a company that operates in this market. So we use our data directly in our underwriting methods to say, what do we believe make more resilient assets? How do we give that feedback to clients via the brokers? How do we rate on it? And I want to get back to an earlier question, which was, what is climate insurance? Which I think it could mean different things to different people. To me, it is insurance that supports, I'll call it climate positive assets in the ground. So there's a lot of companies under this umbrella that can satisfy this. There's companies like ours, which are represent basically insurance companies. So energetic, they help support, you know, credit risk, but help to get deals financed. There's a couple companies that are doing carbon credit insurance. So if you buy a carbon credit and the tree that they planted burned down or whatever, like they pay you out for that to ensure the quality of the carbon credit. There's a handful of companies that are doing the modeling. So advanced wildfire modeling, advanced sort of like taking the, like the IPCC models and trying to build climate models on top of it. So renewables is sort of this interesting thing, right? Because it's exposed to climate-driven natural disasters, but it's also meant to address climate-driven natural disasters. <laughs> so anything that's sort of in that mix, to me, I would say renewable energy property insurance is the most exciting. That's obviously where we play, but it's a very big market globally. Swiss Re says there's hundreds of billions of dollars of renewable energy premium that will be traded over the next 10 years. So if you're like a carrier looking at where do you need to get smart, all of their books are shifting from traditional thermal, traditional fossil fuels into renewables. So, you know, a lot of my narrative is back to the carriers as, hey, this is a segment you really need to pay attention to, deploy more capacity into, like, it's good business for me, but it's good business, frankly, for us as a, I'll call it as a renewable energy community, because we're putting assets in the ground faster than carriers are deploying <laughs> balance sheets towards it. So like everyone can come in and participate and there's still probably going to be more demand than we can satisfy. It's the drum I've been banging feverishly to the insurance and reinsurance community, as well as trying to educate our market about like, how do we educate the carriers? How do we build more resilient assets? It's, it's pretty critical. Absolutely. And to that point, your organization publishes every year an annual solar risk assessment, which is a comprehensive report designed to provide an objective and data-driven evaluation of the risks faced by especially solar projects. While the industry itself enjoys a number of tailwinds that's been driving its growth, including the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides a number of long-term incentives to build these projects, there have been efforts to freeze tariffs that were put in place previously, supply chains have come back to a decent extent in the industry, which has obviously helped but as you note in the report, the industry continues to face a number of risks, and you delineate three specific types of risks. One, financial modeling, two, operational, and three, extreme weather related, which we touched on a little bit earlier, but we'll dig into that a little bit more as well. First, I want to get into the financial modeling risks. I think the biggest one here is in terms of the generation capacity of these projects, which of course drives their ability to generate revenue and their financeability as a result of the revenue, as you previously noted. Mm -hmm. And we've been wildly overestimating the production capabilities of these assets. So tell us why this has happened and the broader implications of this for the industry. Appreciate the overview of the report. And before I get into your, your specific question, 
I'll state a thesis that I haven't put on the record yet, but that I uh, am curious how others will react to it, which is with the Inflation Reduction Act and the ability to transfer tax credits, I think one of the consequences of that is that they're going to drive down the barriers to entry of who can build and finance assets. Like if you don't need to meet the, the requirements of tax equity, then you should be able to be a mom and pop installer and go get financing. And my macro concern as an industry is that we're going to make a lot of the same mistakes or new entrants will make the same mistakes that we've made and learned about over the last 10 years. So we've been publishing the solar risk assessment for the last five years, to your point. It's almost more important for the next five years because <laughs> we're going to have a lot of new people who are looking for resources, looking for best practices. So I guess my call for other peers in the industry is like, let's keep our industry out of trouble to the extent there are best practices that you know and can share. I think it like all, all ships rise. We know people are going to come in and take advantage of the transfer. So how can we collectively help educate the market? So your podcast is a, is a great form and example of that. Okay. Now to your actual question, which is about financial modeling and production forecasting. One of the key assumptions into a project finance model is how much is your asset going to produce and how much revenue are you going to generate? And to your point, Chad, as an industry, we put out another comp like sister report called the Solar Generation Index. And our findings were that on the whole, if you compare forecasted numbers to actual generation numbers, there's about an 8% delta. So sort of across the country, not every asset's going to perform like this, but some are above the mean, some are below the mean. 8% is sort of the average under production. And why is that? You know, it's a good question. Part of it is technical, and the cynical part of me will say part of it is commercial. I think we have the tools to model things pretty well, right? Everyone uses sort of PVSYST and related products to that. But in a world of, of ITC, of the investment tax credit, and frankly, loan size to revenue streams, the cynical part of me says the higher your number, the more financing you get. <laughs> so it's not really been a, an issue that the industry has been terribly concerned about solving. Now, that being said, if I go back to the Inflation Reduction Act, in a world of PTCs, if I'm the CEO of a developer... Which are production tax credits, which uh, just for our listeners, the tax credits are different, whether it's an investment tax credit, ITC, or production tax credit, PTC. The production tax credit is based on not the amount of capital invested, but the production of the facility over often a period of 10 years or so. Thank you for clarifying that. That's exactly right. And in a world of production tax credits, which the Inflation Reduction Act also enabled, if I'm the CEO of a developer... My decision to elect an ITC or PTC hinges heavily on that number, right? Heavily on, is my team accurate in their production forecasting? So my hope for the future is that as an industry, we sort of condense that gap from 8% down to 1% or 2%. And it's the independent engineers, the IEs, who are the ones who sign off on these production estimates that we've determined have been overestimating by an average of 8%, which is pretty significant. If I got 8% less of my salary for this year, I would be pretty upset about it. And if it happened year after year after year, I, I might not be too happy with the folks who told me I was going to get that full salary instead of just 92% of it. So what role do the IE have here, the independent engineers? And how can your report and your analysis better inform their efforts? Yeah, it's even worse than that, Chad, because if you have a mortgage and a car payment and all that, you're actually paying 80% of your salary to other people. If you're 8% shortfall, your discretionary income goes down a lot That's more. just on a gross basis. On a net basis, it's far worse. Yeah, which is, how, which is how all this stuff works, right? Money's going out the door to pay off your loan, pay off your tax equity. So the equity is much more exposed. 
so in the solar risk assessment, ICF contributed. I think the independent engineers are getting a lot stronger at getting data back from the system that they model than using that to inform their underwriting. So ICF said 99% availability. Let's be honest, it's not actually happening out in the field. So they, in one of the articles in this year's solar risk assessment is that it should be lower than that. And they presented some data to present to, to the market. There's not any singular factor. The thing about PV cyst is you can have there's a hundred different knobs you can pull and you can put any weather file you want into there. So it's really about using data to help inform what are those assumptions that are driving this and, you know, being judicious about modeling it accurately. I know that's not a silver bullet solution, <laughs> but to your point, the IEs are the ones often on the front line sitting between a developer who may have some sort of financial incentive to, to get a number and the bank who's underwriting that. And I guess my hope is that as we move towards PTCs and we move towards better data using the underwriting process, those numbers will begin to, to line up a little bit more closely. Right. You mentioned your solar revenue put as your first product. And I believe your company released mm-hmm. which... You could buy the solar revenue put to put a floor It helps address it. this yeah. risk. I'm going to let you pitch that product here right now, or if you want to do so for a minute or so. Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity. So the solar revenue put will put a, will put a floor on that figure. So we use our own data-driven underwriting models. We have a production forecasting model that's sort of like PVSYST, an open source version of PVSYST, validated by thousands of projects. And we know based off location and technology and DCAC ratios and et cetera, et cetera, what that plan is likely to do over the next 10, 15 years. So you can come to us, we'll find an insurance carrier to underwrite the risk. And if you've fall below a certain trigger point, below a certain megawatt hour threshold, you know, we make you whole for that. So that's a financial mechanism to to shift some of that risk as well into a third-party market. If you're worried about either your own cash flow or if your bank is worried about sort of underwriting a number, it works in either of those regards. So better informing the IEs and the solar revenue put are, are ways that can help us address this risk. Our next challenge are operational risks. Your report details that one of the primary drivers of plant underperformance is unscheduled equipment maintenance and failures, which obviously can lead to downtime and lost energy production and lower overall project returns. According to your research, when you looked at the equipment that is most culpable for this, you find that it's it's very often inverters, uh, which are obviously required in all solar projects, and they result in nearly half of these sorts of energy losses, obviously higher than any other single component. So tell us more about this risk and its implications for the industry. Yeah, inverters are pernicious. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, and inverters, you know, I've come to learn as well from, from peers in the industry. Inverters also just exhibit a lot of the failures, even if they sort of sit upstream on the DC side. So you can have a ground fault because of a wiring issue and your inverter trips. And, you know, there you go. But I would say inverters on the whole, absolutely as you said, are a big cause of the problems. Part of it as well is that the inverter manufacturers used to, when I entered the industry, like allow third-party techs to go service the equipment and they sort of pulled back from that. So you have supply chain issues and you have sort of a lack of qualified techs that can go out and fix the issues. And then you also have, you know, one of the other articles in the solar risk assessment is that if you actually look at their efficiency, inverter efficiency in different environments, most of the places either deploy, they're actually not performing at the efficiencies that the inverter manufacturers are saying. 
So it's, you know, I kind of feel like at least in the reliability of assets. So like when we talk about resilience, which is the physical asset, I'll call it like property insurance. I think of modules as a big driver. So I think about reliability, which is the ability of the asset to hit its uptime targets and generate enough power. I think inverters have a big culprit. And I'm sure you've seen it, Chad, and and all of the the work that you guys do. It just seems like every tech in the world is sort of things are head against the wall to try to get their inverters to perform. I saw, you know, on LinkedIn, it's like, oh, we pushed a software upgrade and now our inverters aren't working or even worse, they're they're failing at a, at a very dramatic fashion. So it's, yeah, I don't know how to say it other than it's a problem and paying attention to the inverter reliability is, is pretty critical, I think. Then finally, we did touch on extreme weather risks earlier, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about the most common extreme weather risks that solar projects face and the lessons learned mm-hmm. in terms of manufacturing processes that we can use to address these risks going forward. Absolutely. On the extreme hazard side, I'd say solar projects are exposed to all of them based on where they're deployed. The ones that are probably top of mind, well, a lot of them are top of mind, but let's say hail, we'll talk about hail for a minute. Fire, we'll talk about for a second. And then the ones I won't spend as much time on are are flood and hurricane. And then there's winter storm, which is basically heavy snow on the panels and an earthquake. But I start with hail because that's the one that sort of keeps everyone up at night. And we touched on earlier in the podcast that we're building assets in hail-prone regions, right? So how do we address that? Fortunately, there's been a lot of research that shows that you can at least mitigate it with good operational practices and better equipment selection. So on the operational practices side, hailstow has become quite an important theme, which basically says if a hailstorm is coming, and you tilt your panels out of the way, use your tracker to basically put it kind of in windstow, but similar either for hail. Uh, it does two things. It takes the amount of physical glass facing the sky, like the physical amount of surface area is reduced. But then also if your hail hits it, it's more of a glancing blow. So like if you're looking at your physics, the kinetic energy going into the module is reduced. So that's all good and well. I think the key challenge for the asset owners that are listening is how do you operationalize those practices? So I think now people who are paying attention to insurance and what's going on in the markets or listen to podcasts know about Hailstone, but like you got to know the hailstorm's coming. You need to have an escalation plan as to say at certain thresholds, we're going to hit the button and go into stow. If Jason's on vacation, Chad needs to know to step in and do it. Like how to operationalize that is where we see a lot of people still having some missteps. So that's sort of the key theme is how do you operationalize your hailstone procedures? And I think looking forward, there's also going to be an equipment selection decision to say, you know, I've I've heard of module manufacturers talking about thicker glass, right? So can we put thicker glass on the modules, maybe make it less prone to break to a hailstorm? Within the solar risk assessment, there's research that talks about glass-glass modules, so bifacial modules. Those actually have thinner glass than glass backsheet modules. So maybe a less preferred solution for a hail-prone region. But I think as an industry, we're just going to continue to to get smarter about how to handle that physical event. And, you know, hail takes up all the air in the room because it's now the biggest market. And some of the pictures that come out after hailstorms are just like, totally gory and then Bloomberg picks it up and then everyone's like, oh, solar's awful. 
I think it can be managed if you do it well. You know, the next one I'm going to go to is fire. The main theme there is, well, twofold. One is it's not typically wildfires. We're not building these in forests, but brush fire. So how do you mitigate that? Right. I mean, if you're designing a plan, you can have fire breaks and other things, but it's predominantly vegetation management, right? Mowing the lawn, pulling out the brush, making sure the local fire station knows how to handle it, having water available. But as an operator, you can do a lot to control whether or not your site is prone to that. Now, I said I touched on a few other ones. Flood, you know, really important to look at the flood maps for where you're building a location. You can elevate pieces of equipment for the one in 100 or one in 500 year floodplain. So that will be very critical if you're anywhere where there's flooding, which these days seems like it's happening more and more. Hurricane, your attachment methods to the racking, making sure you're doing torque test audits, uh, making sure equipment's super secure, just like ahead of a hurricane, putting it into windstow. I mean, the thing is you're, we build these assets and then sometimes you can't, like you can't, you're not gonna replace all the equipment that's out on the site. So there's a lot of operational decisions and I think a lot of control that asset managers have to site resilience. And that's, again, one of the themes I'm going to keep banging until as an industry, I feel like our, our competence is high on that. And like we're learning more every year. It's an evolving, evolving topic. Absolutely. Well, we're certainly glad your risk assessment report helps us learn each year about these risks. So Jason, we're almost done, but before we end, we, we have the hot seat. So we asked for your immediate reactions to each of the following statements. Okay. The first one is one thing I've changed my mind on is. Mm, I'll say nuclear. I was pretty down on it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when my climate change class basically said this is a problem for future generations. And I think that that was clearly a misestimate and it's a problem like now. <laughs> so I'll say nuclear. I'm much more supportive of it than I was. Small modular nuclear? Just like the concept of nuclear. I don't know if I have a, a preference within that. Sure. When I need to recharge, I go look at some redwood trees. I'm in California, so I have the benefit of, of being near redwoods, but they're, they're just the most majestic, I was going to say creatures, most majestic uh, plants, trees to me. The key ingredient to my productivity is? I'm going to say sleeping on it. Like I actually think that there's a lot that I get done by putting something down and coming back to it the next day and looking at it with a new set of eyes. Fresh eyes. I want my kids to know. I guess that I tried. <laughs> We're working on it, that there's a lot of us that are, that are working feverishly to get us out of a bad problem. <laughs> Good college try. <laughs> Hopefully better than that. We need to as a human species. Well, you are a Berkeley resident and I spent two years in Berkeley. So the most underrated part of East Bay is... I don't know if it's underrated, but maybe I'd say the, the least known is up in like the Berkeley and Oakland Hills. There's a lot. I mean, hey, there's a lot of redwoods and incredible hiking, but also great stuff like for kids. Right. So we have a farm up there. Where you can feed the cows that are all owned by the city or the county. Uh, there's like a carousel. There's like a little steam train you can take your kids on. So we enjoy that up there up in like Tilden area. Excellent. And finally, to me, climate positive means. Gosh, a lot of hard work. I mean, I think everyone in this industry is just heads down, working really hard. Nothing comes easy, but I think we're seeing the tides of change. So it's giving me some optimism. Well, thank you very much for your hard work and your time today, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Chad. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. 
This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.